0: Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors and improvers in supply chain management today. Brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland coming to you today from the Yungamba country and thank you for joining me. A hearty welcome. It's uh, good to have you company. If you're a first timer, welcome. If you're a regular listener, even better, even warmer, welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us. This is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them. The Digitalisation to keep up with your peers and your industries. Decarbonisation to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states, 7-2045. And ongoing disruptions which come in many shapes, not only pandemics, but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistical interruptions and changes, technology change, global inflation, generational change, Just the list goes on, there's so many. Each fortnight, I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain, I chat with fascinating and interesting people, and we try to have some fun along the way. Each fortnight, I also ask for your feedback, and thank you to everyone for your messages. You know, one of the most regular comments, I get asked about is the Australian logistics and supply chain infrastructure. What's happening with our ports, with our airports, and our major roads to improve our business productivity? It's a really good question. Not long ago, Australia ports were listed as the 40th in the world in terms of productivity by several different reports. So sure, our ports are small and less technologically advanced than some of the larger ports around the world, but still, it's not, 40, it's not a great result, is it? Logisticians will also tell you of the importance of an effective air freight system in a country the size of Australia and from the distance from our markets. According to Statistica, uh, a a company that reported in May this year, air freight in Australia is generally low volume but high value. Recent years has seen a trade volume of around 1.2 million metric tonnes, but with a trade value of approximately 110 billion Australian dollars. Approximately half of the country's air freight arrives and departs from Sydney, with the rest spread across Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth. Less than 5% of our freight is landed or takes off from other, par- other cities or other ports, which puts pressure on our road system. And when it comes to road freight, the statistics say there's been an eight times increase in road freight between 1970 and 2020. The majority of freight in Australia is moved by road. So it's not surprising I get asked about infrastructure a lot. Business people across the country really want and need to know what's happening with our critical supply chain infrastructure. Mm. But it's a bit tricky, you see, because to get a full update on infrastructure, I'd need to talk with someone who understood public policy. I'd then need to talk to someone who knows about freight and logistics through ports and airports. And then finally, I'd need to talk to someone who knows about road infrastructure. It's quite a number of episodes of uh, supply circles. But hang on, wait, I don't need three different people. I just need Michael. Michael Gareth, my good mate. Keen listeners will recall my interview with Michael way back in episode 12 where we talked about how road design is adapting to a new way of living since COVID and to the introduction of EVs. And I'm really pleased to say that he's agreed to come back on the show today to talk about infrastructure. So, Michael, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, James. Great to be back.
0: Let me introduce you to our listeners. Michael has been a senior executive in this sector for over two decades after a successful career in business. Among other roles, he's been the National Director, Energy Infrastructure Policy and Government Affairs for Energy Networks Australia. He was then the Managing Director of the Australian Logistics Council for nine years. The Australian Logistics Council represents all of the major freight operators in Australia. And he recently finished a successful four-year stint as the CEO of Roads Australia. Like I said, he's the perfect person to chat with about the supply chain infrastructure. That's a pretty damn good CV, Michael, and still a career. What are you doing now that you've left Roads
1: Australia? Uh, thanks, James. So what I've done is I've set up Garef Advisory, which really specialises in that uh, juncture between industry and government and stakeholder engagement. I often find, over my career, that um, industry and government, while they may be looking for the same objectives, often can be speaking different languages, and there's some frustration about um, the other party not really understanding the position that they're in. So, my my aim really is to try and achieve uh, get outcomes and uh, help those help industry and government really get on the same page to be able to achieve the objectives that they're both looking for.
0: Sounds good and important for what we're talking about today. So, all the best. Mm. Infrastructure has often been described as, or infrastructure spend has often been described as public policy in action uh, because uh, infrastructure is policy, isn't it? If you think about Mm. all the things that uh, we need to do in Australia to make our our business lives more efficient, there's many, many things. There's lots of them. But one of them is infrastructure. How does infrastructure policy get developed? What are the the issues around it? Big question, I realise that, but just, you know, like, in a summary?
1: Yeah, look, it it is a big question. And, of course, um, the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, um, when he was the Minister for Infrastructure, set up Infrastructure Australia to try and, I guess, work with the parties to be able to develop a policy and direct the spending where it's meant to go. But, of course, governments, uh, being the ones that are actually handing out the money, uh, will often prefer the infrastructure that, Um, that they might think is important Um, and states, of course, quite often are the recipients of Commonwealth funding but then they have their own infrastructure priorities so it's a really complicated space and um, at the moment we've got um, some reforms to Infrastructure Australia underway that is aiming to make it a more independent um, arbiter of infrastructure policy and decision-making uh, we've got a um, what's been called the ninety-day review or the infrastructure investment program review that's currently underway in terms of um, where that money is going. So at the moment, it's actually a really important time in terms of infrastructure policy and the you know the one hundred and twenty billion dollars ten-year program that the Commonwealth government has to roll out.
0: Yeah, and it's tricky because, as I said in the intro, we have changed the way we live and operate since COVID or during COVID and, and mm. since then. Uh, technology has changed in the way we live and operate. So we've got to build infrastructure that is suited for 20 years' time and we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years' time.
1: No, well, that, that's, that's exactly right. And the, the thing is, of course, is that governments, while they do have plans and strategies, the spending programs really don't look any further than the four-year forward estimates. And so, for governments to even commit to anything after, you know, with five years and beyond is actually quite difficult. And um, so that that just makes this space um, a really interesting one. And I, I think we're going to get on to the issue of COVID, and COVID certainly did change quite a few things. Um, of course, one of the things that happened during COVID was all of a sudden people worked out that supply chains were actually quite important because, of course, you went to your supermarket and, toilet paper and other goods weren't there um, fairly available as they previously were. So all of a sudden uh, people began to understand that supply chains were important. That led on to other things, for example, suburban curfews that stopped trucks from delivering uh, products to supermarkets all of a sudden were abolished. But what we're finding coming out of COVID is that, of course, a lot of the old thinking is starting to creep back And um, so now's a really good time, I think, for Australia to be looking at how our supply chains work. And the government actually does currently have a review of the National freight Supply Chain Strategy um, underway. And uh, we're hoping that a lot of the issues that are quite legacy issues um, will will be addressed as part of that.
0: There's other challenges too, though, uh, isn't there? I see the uh, Victorian uh, Supreme, the High Court, my apologies, mm. the High Court struck down the Victorian government's idea, legislation, that they would charge electric vehicles per kilometre mm. uh, because it needs some way to replace the fuel surcharge that they are fed off for 30 years. Basically, if we no longer buy petrol, we don't we don't pay any taxes. Mm. So We just recharge our batteries. So finding a way to fund the infrastructure is going to be a bit tricky in the future as well.
1: Yeah, it is. And the fuel excise one is an interesting one because... Fuel excise was always intended as a mechanism to um, fund both the construction and maintenance of roads. That was the sole purpose it was put in place. And even the the fact that there's a thing called the diesel fuel rebate in place, which basically works where um, you know somebody's got a truck that doesn't drive on a public road, then they can claim back the excise that they've used, um, just reinforces that that's uh, that that was its purpose. Now. Um, we do need to look at uh, an alternative mechanism because there's a couple of things that happen. One is that vehicles are becoming more fuel efficient and also with the introduction of EVs, there won't be any fuel excise paid. So the Victorian government and New South Wales and uh, Western Australia decided to go it alone and introduce their own um, EV uh, road excise or tax, whatever you like to call it, The Commonwealth or the High Court has recently struck that down. So, what that means is that the pressure is now going to be on the Commonwealth Government through the Council of Financial Relations or the Infrastructure and Transport Ministers meeting to actually pick this up, take some leadership, and actually take a national approach to how we actually fund the construction, but most importantly, the maintenance of these roads where we've got this massive infrastructure spend underway with these fantastic road systems that have and are being put in place, these, these, this infrastructure needs to be maintained to ensure that in the years to come, it's actually still fit for purpose. And uh, yeah, so the, the focus is really going to turn to the Commonwealth Government here in terms of ensuring that there's a way to fund the construction and maintenance of roads.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a tricky one. It's been interesting Mm. to see how they try and resolve it. Uh, It's it's, uh, the idea of people don't smoke as much anymore, so we don't get cigarette tax. People don't drive fuel cars anymore. We don't get fuel tax. Um, We need to find funds from somewhere to build this infrastructure. That's a great setup as to the challenges that we've got. Thank you. Let's talk Mm. about the specifics. Let's start with ports. Um, I think you're in Victoria. I, I, I'll I'll yep. you in. Uh, you're in you're in Victoria. You live in Melbourne. I think the Victorian government is doing some work with the with the port centre, or someone's working with the the Melbourne port. Is it right?
1: Mm. Yeah, the Victorian government um, does have a commercial port strategy, and one of the um, one of the things that they've really started to address is the issue of um, rail transport to and from the port. Um, the the Port Transformation Project, it's called in in Victoria. Now, traditionally, or not traditionally, but the fact is that around Australia, um, ports do tend to be in areas that leads to uh, congestion and competition with urban areas, Um, Melbourne in particular, um, really now is the only capital city port that literally is right next to the CBD.
0: Yeah, so when you think about it, we live on an island. The, 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 the first mm-hmm. thing we do is we land at somewhere like Brisbane River or, or Sydney Harbour or uh, Port Phillips, and of course um, that, that creates a port, and around that we grow the city. It makes sense. The yeah. problem is that when you get modern day, the last place you want your port to be is in the middle of an urban area. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah so, I'm sorry, continue. So, there's uh, they're looking at ways to solve that problem, I think.
1: Yeah, well, they are. And, and look, just on that point, of course, uh, Sydney, the port, um, used to actually be down near where um, Barangaroo now is. That was moved out to Port Botany. Um, yeah, Dulling Harbour. Uh, yeah. You see the, the photos. Yeah, that's there. right. Yeah. And um, so, there, there's a number of issues. So Um, there's a real focus on ensuring that we get more freight to the ports on rail. Now, it's not really being done very effectively. Um, In in Melbourne, in Victoria, it's less than 10%. In New South Wales, it's less than 20% of the containers go on rail. Uh, And this is despite best efforts by all governments to uh, try and lift the percentage of um, freight on rail. So the port, the rail transformation project in Melbourne is really focused on uh, ensuring that we get more uh, containers on rail and, and we get less of the um, of those port shuttle those heavy vehicles uh, running around the port um, to um, you know and basically causing congestion. but of course with the growing freight task uh, that's going to mean that there's going to be even more containers moving in and out of the ports. And uh, it's absolutely imperative that we ensure that uh, the majority of that increase in freight task is serviced by rail.
0: It, it sounds like an innovative solution to me. Um, mm-hmm. Ines uh, Willock, our CEO who was on this program a little while ago, highlighted the fact that there's three parts to the port. There's the bit about getting the ship to dockside. Uh, then there is the bit of unloading the containers from the ship. Then there's a the bit of getting the containers off the wharf. To where it needs to go, and we saw in um, mm. in COVID, particularly in uh, Long Beach in, in the US and other ports, Rotterdam was the same. Uh, they were just banking up on the on the on the port because they couldn't get them out of town. Uh, mainly, they couldn't get mm. drivers, they couldn't get trucks and drivers. So this idea about moving it, and then when they do hit the streets, they just block up Melbourne streets uh, mm. with, with semi trailers. So putting on a train seems like an innovative solution.
1: Yeah, it is, and you'd think that it's actually logical, common sense that 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 would happen. But of course, the issue is that um, uh, a lot of those trucks that you see driving around the ports, they are quite agile. Um, They can be there uh, when you need them, they can go to where you need them to go. Um, And um, you know, like it or not, um, in our um, cities nowadays, Melbourne, Sydney in particular, we've built some fantastic highways. Uh, where these trucks can get to where they need to go uh, quite easily. Um, so we need to make sure that um, that we're encouraging rail uh, in terms of shifting it out to those intermodal terminals and using that as the point where the heavy vehicles are basically taking the containers to where they need to go.
0: Yeah, it's always the challenge of a, a rail line the same as a pipeline. You, you have to be absolutely certain mm. that in 20 years' time it's going to be in the right spot. Um, Yeah, you can't just pick them up and move them. We've heard about multimodals for 30 years now. What Mm. is it?
1: Yeah, good question. And look, there's been a big focus on um, intermodal terminals uh, around Australia, really driven by the development of Moorbank in um, in uh, Sydney. Now, intermodal terminals were around before Moorbank really uh, got up and running, but Moorbank has been the one where uh, they've really taken. Uh, they've really taken it to the next level. So essentially it's a it's an um, industrial facility where road and rail uh, can meet and where there's an efficient um, exchange of containers and goods to ensure that those containers or goods are heading off to the right distribution centres and supermarkets and wherever else they need to go. So sort of moving it
0: away from the port to a a more suitable location to do the distribution.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and for a very good reason, that's why they're called inland ports um, because it's essentially, um, you know, where the containers are, are broken down and um, shipped off to where they need to go. And the interesting thing is that most of the containers that come into a port generally don't move further than about 80 kilometres. Um, So most of the containers that come into a, a, um, a city port like um, the Port of Melbourne generally won't go more than, more than 80 k's away from the, the port. So the best way to get them out to where they need to go is by rail.
0: Are we seeing this sort of solution around the country or is it just Sydney and Melbourne?
1: No, it's, um, the, the focus on getting more freight on rail certainly is a national issue. Um, even over in Perth uh, they've really focused on uh, trying to get containers into the Port of Fremantle uh, using a um, effectively a subsidy, uh, of course, that the port of Fremantle will be moving in due course um, down to the um, down down south, but it's a national issue, and it's driven really by the fact that it's a, there's a realization that the freight task is growing, and at the moment, um, you know, what have we got about sort of um, eight million containers or twenty foot equivalents, as they're called. Um, that come into Australia, but that freight tax is expected to possibly double uh, between now and 2050. So we've got to think about, in terms of our urban environment, how are those containers going to be moved in such a way that they don't um, affect the amenity of the cities that um, you know the ultimate users of those consumer goods are living in?
0: Yes, um it can lead to great inefficiency if, if it's not done right. And we're going to build some more mm. ports outside of major cities. We're we going to see Newcastle become a major port, or Wollongong, or port, Portland in Victoria, or something like that.
1: Look, possibly. I mean, the interesting thing about um, uh, the port at Port Botany, NSW ports, is that it was moved out of the urban environment in Sydney out to Port Botany to enable it to be away from um, the urban environment but what's happened in the meantime is that we've had urban encroachment um, so whereas Port Potney was once uh, a port that could be as as loud as an industrious as it likes we've now got people living around 200 metres away from the port and understandably they complain about sirens and things like that that go off in the middle of the night mm-hmm. so um, land preservation around um, ports and intermodal terminals is a really important issue. Um, there's definitely a suggestion that the Port of Melbourne will move at some point. Um, it's really on the back burner, uh, but the two options here are whether it actually happens over to place called Hastings or whether it actually happens a little bit uh, west around the port, but I don't foresee that happening in the near future because the problem is, as you said before, is that these, these infrastructure assets are worth billions and billions of dollars, and once you make a decision about where something's going to go, you're stuck with it.
0: Yeah, it's not easy. I know the Navy's been talking about moving the Navy out of Garden Island for as long as I've been alive, I think, but it's still there. They're still expanding mm-hmm. it. They're still improving it because uh, the options are limited as to where you can put them mm-hmm. a deep water port. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other issue on ports is just the technology of the port itself of the moving the mm. the, the freight from the ships to the trucks. Where are we with that? Are you, is that in your kind of you know framework? Do you know much about look,
1: that? I, look, look, I, I think I think Australia is certainly catching up, and some of the automation that's happening down in um, at NSW ports is really quite exciting and encouraging. Um, my perspective is, uh, I, I think we're still lagging behind where a lot of the international ports are. I remember being in the um, port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands a few years back, standing in the um, office of a of a um, of a port operator and just watching these cranes and um, uh, you know small container movements that are happening all around the port, and it's all automated. And uh, so that was something that we were really lagging behind but eventually I think especially around say Port Botany the, the intention is to be able to basically move the container off the ship um, without anyone touching it then get it onto a train without anyone touching it and then basically even with that train have an automated train going from the Port of Botany out to Moorbank um, and effectively the first time that anyone actually lays a hand on that container would be when they crack it open to unpack it. Uh, I think that's that's really where we're going and I, I think there's a couple of operators, you know, Cube in particular um, in New South Wales who've really put a lot of work into that automation of our ports because really in terms of driving that efficiency of the ports in Australia, I think that's the next big step that we need to be taking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A while ago, I was at a CSIRO and I saw a working model, uh, a working example, I guess you'd say, of uh, guide a uh, an oarship into Weipa in North Queensland where they export book, uh, book uh, guide the ship in and out of the port, have it loaded uh, without any people around. Uh, and I said, that's <clears> pretty <throat> amazing. And They said, the amazing thing is we could probably do it during a cyclone. Uh, we don't need it to close operations because of weather because um, it, we can do it so cleverly, and they're doing it from Brisbane they wouldn't be they wouldn't, they're not doing it anywhere close to Weeper, and we could run the ports mm. the same way. you could just op- yep. operate it from home, work from home <laughs> and load a ship from home, but it's quite quite doable
1: yeah look i mean um you know over in Europe they do currently have and you know it's still uh, it's still being trialed, but they do have ships that actually um, automated ships that are actually doing coastal routes now that actually don't um, have a crew on board. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever why that couldn't be the case. I mean, part of the issue, I think, with automation generally is social license. Um, and that is the extent to which people think that something out on the road or out in the bay or out on the out on the ocean with nobody on board is actually um, a good or a safe thing. That's something that uh, we need to get people across. But port automation uh, is certainly something that's um, that it's here and it's happening.
0: It might not just be at sea, though. I mean, they might still have crews at sea, but then instead of sending a mm. uh, pilot out to drive them into the into the port because that person is an expert on the river system of that port, it, you've got a computer mm. that does it and it just comes in yeah. pretty much like a plane that can land by a computer that we have pilots there just to make sure if anything goes wrong. Yeah,
1: yeah. totally.
0: Yeah. Um, this is a, this is a fascinating chat. When we come back, let's talk about airports and um, uh, and road system. Now, M- Michael Kugath advisory. Now we've known each other for a long time, and we've enjoyed many good nights out. Uh, this solving the problems of the world. I'm still amazed that there's problems in the world considering what we've done, uh, all the work we've put into this. But I, if you were going to advise people, I thought you would be advising people on steak and good wine. Have you come across any good wine lately?
1: Uh, look, James. James, that's a quest that you never actually—you uh, never get there. It's like a—it's like a business strategy. You have uh, lofty goals and ideals, but uh, as soon as you get to where you need to be, then the the goalpost shifts. So, um, no, I haven't. But generally, uh, where I've landed is that the best open red wine can be found at my place. Oh,
0: I can attest to that. Absolutely. All right, let's come back in a minute.
1: If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at AI That's B-I-G at AI group.com.au.
0: Michael, let's talk about uh, the, uh, the, the air freight. It's interesting what I said in the intro about most of the air freight in and out of Australia goes through uh, the capital cities, the major capital cities, most of it through Sydney, uh, which means it's all very centralised. But recently we've seen a lot of new airports opening. We've seen uh, Toowoomba, uh, a great example. Uh, we've seen North Queensland uh, expand their operation. And of course Avalon has taken off in a, in a big way in terms of freight. What's really happening with uh,
1: the thinking regarding airports around Australia for, for air freight? Yeah, interesting one. Uh, of course, we've got the um, Western Sydney Airport, um, known as the Aerotropolis, which is basically, uh, you know, going to have effectively, the aim is to have a fully, fully functioning, um, uh, effectively intermodal terminal uh, around the airport uh, with a, a new city. And a community that's basically focused on ensuring the uh, the viability and the you know the ongoing operations of the airport itself. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things. One, I is-
0: should get uh, I should get someone on a, uh, about the new city of Bradfield. Uh, they, they, uh, the mm-hmm. people there tell me that they're building a city the size of Perth with everything that you could get in Perth in Western Sydney. It's, a, it's an it's amazing yeah. uh, plan. You know, entertainment centers and. And river systems to play on, uh, and a big, big airport, and a big multimodal. So yeah, it's a, yeah that's yeah. pretty exciting. That's sort of breaking things up a bit, I guess.
1: I mean the the uh, the interesting thing that's happening there is that eventually they're also aiming to um, get a freight rail hub there as well, um, as they do it, uh, as they are aiming to do it. Well, camp in um, Toowoomba. um So the interesting thing about air freight is that eighty percent of the um, Uh, Air freight that comes into Australia actually comes in the bellies of uh, passenger aircraft. Yeah, yeah. And um, of course, uh, you've got to make sure that the uh, the produce that you that you're moving is either high value or um, so perishable that it needs to be moved quite quickly. Um, The interesting thing post um, GFC was that with the uh, growth in consumer goods like, um, you know, um, stereos, computer goods and things like that because there was such a short lead time in terms of um, how up-to-date they were. A lot of those were actually coming in uh, by air freight because there was such high demand for the latest in whatever it is that you were looking for. Yeah, right.
0: So we're going to turn them over all the time, so we've got to get them in now, sell them before we
1: get the new model out in a few months' time. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, other, the other thing too, of course, is that it's absolutely imperative that our airports um, remain curfew-free. Um, the curfew that's in place at Sydney Airport uh, was put in place so long ago that even the regulations that apply to it now are so archaic But for example, um, you know there are some exceptions to the curfew that a certain aircraft can actually uh, come in out of ours. Now, um, the, due to the fact that there are now more Quieter and more efficient aircraft, it's quite possible uh, that we could replace those aircraft with ones that are more modern. But because it's so hard to actually change the legislation and regulation around the curfew, uh, we're still stuck with these aircraft that, um, in today's terms, are completely archaic. Um, so, absolutely imperative that Western Sydney Airport be curfew free. It's
0: quite a headache. Um, I, 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 as you know, I, I worked in aircraft for one time, I worked in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I uh, ran operations in Sydney for a long time, and you'd, you'd run into these crazy problems where uh, the freighter plane from Perth left on time, but got held up because of headwinds across the Nullarbor. Landed in Melbourne, we loaded the plane super efficiently, uh, started to fly up to Sydney, and they would say, "I can't get to Sydney until oh, I think you know, like four minutes past midnight." And they say, "Well, the curfew kicks yeah. in at midnight," so we'd have to hold the plane in Melbourne for like five hours. Five hours. Mm-hmm and then get it into Sydney and then the freight wouldn't be distributed until midday and all, all of our customers are screaming and saying, why is this yeah. not here at the start of business? They say, it's just because of the curfew. I can't do the curfew. Mm. And it's incredibly inefficient considering it was based around noisy prop jets basically and really noisy you know, turbo props.
1: Yeah. And, of course, it's highly political. Um, as you know, I mean, uh, the current Prime Minister's seat Um Is uh, adjacent to the airport, and um, there's always debate going on about uh, you know which electorates get the flight paths. You know, because even North Sydney, for example, uh, is in under one one of the flight paths. So yeah, it's a highly political, uh, contentious thing, and as a result, to actually get the curfew legislation amended is impossible because nobody ever wants to open that can kind of world.
0: Yeah. All logistics is, po- uh, is politics. Uh, the War Camp in Toowoomba has been an example, hasn't it? Because they do have mm. now international freight flights, uh, not in the belly of uh, passenger flights, but uh, sending full, mm. full freighter flights of goods and services from the Darling Downs uh, out of Toowoomba, and I assume they're bringing freight in. Is that an example of the future, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, you've got to give it to the Wagners. I mean, that's really a case of build it and they will come. Um, because while they were building that, I don't think anyone thought that it was going to work um, or be successful, um, yet it has. So I've I've flown in there. It's, um, you know, a fantastic facility. Um, yeah, possibly um, for-purpose um, uh, airports like that could well be the way of the future, but as I said, I mean, even with the Western Sydney Airport, if we can protect the protect it from curfews, make sure that it's well serviced by um, freight companies and aircraft, uh, then that airport, I think, will um, be an absolute winner in terms of freight coming into Australia. I mean, I think um, in much the same way that Sydney Airport now actually commands the majority of the air freight in, in and out of Australia, uh, Western Sydney Airport should be able to do that for
0: years to come. Tell you a funny story. My dad worked at Qantas at Mascot uh, for many years. You know, from before uh, it was it was from around the I think the early fifties, uh, and he uh, worked there during the Constellation arrival and then to you know uh, intercontinental jets and things. But when he first started, he used to walk from Mascot where Mum and Dad lived. Uh, down the streets and then across the tarmac <laughs> to, get to, <laughs> to get to his, uh, he, he, was a, he was like a ground engineer. He just worked in a, in a big warehouse factory type of thing there. But they <laughs> they all used to walk across the tarmac, in this, this is Sydney, and they'd say, hang on, stop, there's a plane coming in. <laughs> Times have changed. Yeah, n-
1: nowadays, of course, it'd be a national emergency <laughs> call if um, <laughs> someone found their way onto one of the tarmacs, the entire airport would be shut. Oh, down. I imagine it.
0: Imagine it, yeah. Let's talk about roads. Um, I, um, You've just spent some time at Roads Australia and you've been around the world having a look at what's going on there. I remember years ago, it must have been before COVID, you and I, uh, I went to a, uh, a lunch where you were speaking and, and some engineers and yourself were talking about how they were going to redesign uh, the, the, the freeways near where this uh, event was being held because it would cut 15 minutes off the transit from Brisbane City to the people's homes and uh, make it uh, uh, egress and exit easier. It's got to be pretty tricky to build uh, roads ready for the future, but how do, how, do, how do you go about it? What's going on? Tell me about the thinking of, of road infrastructure in Australia.
1: Yeah, well, it's... A, a, a good question. I mean, each of these particular projects, of course, um, do have a fairly rigorous cost-benefit analysis attached to them. Um, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis, of course, can take into account uh, any number of parameters and, you know, the, I guess the reach even in terms of um, uh, to what extent you consider the ramifications of, you know, what happens, say, 10 or 20 kilometres away. Um, you know, it's a bit arbitrary um but nowadays of course you want to make sure that um freeways doing other the the roads do a number of things one is of course amenity making sure that people can actually get home uh quicker and uh, more easier but they also need to take into account the fact that uh in years to come and i don't think it's all that far away a lot of these cars are going to be automated and um so the road and the roadside infrastructure needs to take into account the fact that um it needs to cater for not only the way that we move now, but the way we might be moving in twenty years' time, and that that can be difficult to predict uh, what what that might look like. Um, so it's uh, you know it's a it's a really interesting uh, issue for those in the road business at the moment.
0: Do you need different roads for electric vehicles, uh, or maybe do electric vehicles not cut up roads as much as as uh, you know? Internal combustion engines, or is there any change?
1: Well, it could be said, in fact, that um, electric uh, electric vehicles um, could be even more damaging to the road, given the fact that um, they're carrying these massive batteries, yes, yes. Uh, and uh, therefore could, in fact, be inflicting more damage on the road. But um, you know, with automation, you could also have the, have a situation where, of course, the you know the acceleration and the way that they actually are driven on the roads could. Uh, could in fact be uh, much better for the road. Yeah,
0: right. I an mean,
1: interesting point there of course is we're just uh, just in the last uh, month or so there's been a couple of changes that have happened with electric trucks and one is that they 've actually allowed another uh, fifty mil in width which is enabled those trucks to comply with international uh, regulations, which basically means that a truck manufactured in the u s or Europe you can just ship here and it'll comply. But the other thing that they've allowed is for the fact that there can be a a higher mass limit on the front axle, and that's driven by the fact that, again, that these batteries are actually quite heavy, and quite often the the total weight will be heavier than the engine, uh, you know, than um, the the engine in the current vehicles. So the roads actually probably do need to be constructed to a higher standard just to take into account the fact that um, the weight or the mass of the of the vehicles that are driving on the road may well be heavier, but I don't think you need different roads. You just need to make sure that the road itself and the roadside infrastructure, being signage, the you know the white lines and all of that sort of thing, caters for the technology that's emerging.
0: Last time we were chatting, we were talking about the fact that uh, working from home is becoming a big issue. Lots more people are uh, working from home, mm-hmm. and as technology kicks in, probably even more. Uh, we are seeing an increase uh, of uh, uh, home deliveries, not only of goods from the ports, but also food and all sorts of things. And we never, <laughs> never leave the front door unless I really have to. It's our style of living. That's going to change the, the whole road system, isn't it? We're going to have to yeah. think about how we design suburbs or uh, how we design
1: our, our businesses. Yep. And, look, combine that with the fact that... Um, A lot of capital cities are now looking at urban infill where they, you know, we don't want cities to just continue the the urban sprawl. We actually want to um, have people live closer to railway stations and um, public transport and things like that. Um, So combine that with the fact that, um, yeah, there is a focus now on actually uh, a lot of the goods coming to you rather than you going to the the shopping centre or the supermarket or uh, wherever it is that you might be getting these goods. So we need to be making sure that, um, you know, that these urban roads can actually cope with um, that, that sort of traffic that we're seeing. But the problem is, of course, getting back to the point we made before is a lot of this infrastructure was designed and built years ago before any of this was even thought of. And um, so really what that means is that we've got to be thinking about how we actually use roads. And certainly, even in capital cities, we need to be thinking about things like congestion taxes um, and really limiting the extent to which people may even want to be able to get in their vehicle and uh, drive to CBD or wherever it is that they need to go. Can they actually get there using public transport or, um, you know, possibly even other mobility solutions? Um, so, looking at the way that we move goods and people. Around capital cities is more needs to be more than just about making sure that people can get in their car and drive to wherever they need to go. It needs to be more about how do we actually manage the demand on those roads. Yeah, one of
0: the things about um, uh, getting to net zero eventually we'll, we'll get to this idea of of carbon miles, and part of that carbon mm-hmm. miles is that if you have if you bring your staff in by cars because you're. you're Business a long way from a train station, you'll have to allow for all those carbon miles of all your staff driving non-electric vehicles into into your yeah. place of work. Uh, so there's a lot to go into. There's a lot of thinking to go into how the roads work, where the infrastructure should be. Are we going yeah. to the other thing, of course, is we're seeing sea chains and tree chains. Don't hear about it much anymore because it's just part of life. But people moving to the coast for a lifestyle, moving to the country for a lifestyle, and still being able to work. As engineers, as as anything, uh, because they can work from home, that's got to put a lot of pressure on local councils. Is our infrastructure set up the right way to en- enable these places to grow effectively, or we still got issues with funding there?
1: Yeah, there there are still big issues with funding there, and one of the things that a lot of governments are grappling with now is something called service standards on roads, where a particular classification of a road, be it a local government road or a, a state road or, or a highway, is the service standards that are attached to that road in terms of when you drive on that road, what do you expect? And therefore, the service standard, of course, then drives the uh, expected maintenance. Um, it, it's certainly the case in a lot of uh, local and and regional roads in particular around Australia at the moment that road maintenance is a massive issue and anyone who drives you know out in the regions at the moment would be able to tell you that in the last couple of years with floods and various other things that have happened uh, the state of our nation's roads is absolutely appalling so by setting up what we call those service standards and attaching some sort of funding mechanism to that uh, we can ensure that we get the the roads that are fit for purpose.
0: Yeah, you raised a good point. I was listening uh, to a, a conference in uh, in Europe a little while ago where they were talking about the difficulty of building infrastructure to manage climate change. Floods being mm-hmm. uh, very big last year in in uh, in Europe, uh, but, but bushfires or wildfires, whatever you want to call it, in the in the US, uh, the infrastructure is going to be under massive physical attack you would imagine mm. if what we've seen in the last few years they continues. so service standards eh?
1: yeah yeah and you know i mean this brings into a into play another concept about build back better i mean we're now in queensland um in northern territory and western australia in particular the the, the sort of the, the flood events that you're getting are now more um severe than they were in previous years um, you can't just be building back a road uh, to a standard that might have applied 30 years ago. You need to be thinking about um, not only the resilience of that infrastructure but also the use that it's going to be put to um, in the years ahead. I mean, in Western Australia the, there was a famous coast with the Fitzroy River Bridge, which had been there for years, um, 12 months ago, going back a bit over 12 months uh, was completely washed away. Now, that's, that's been replaced. It's actually very close now to reopening. Um, but who would have thought 10 years ago that the Fitzroy River Bridge, which is basically part of the National Highway Network, could in fact be washed out? Is
0: that uh, a, a part of that? Nullarbor system, because when, when there is floods in Central Australia, the Nullarbor gets closed regularly, and we can't get trains mm. or we, we can't service a large part of Australia for for weeks on end. We've got trucks stuck in on the roads, mm. and we got trains stuck there. Is, is that the same system? Is because I it's, it's just real I just remember that that's a real weak point in this train network. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, a, it's up north um, near uh, about 100 k's uh, east of Broome.
0: I oh yeah, know where it is. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, sure. but that problem across um, the bottom is, is still an issue as well because that's a major. Yeah, route. Well, that's
1: right. I mean, I mean, just even from a, a freight rail perspective, um, the uh, you know last year the uh, the rail link between uh, the east west rail link was down for a couple of months because it was washed out. There was another situation where the railway line up near Parks was was washed out, and there was a derailment in. In Melbourne, that took the you know took the rail link out for a month or so because of the fact that um, floods had basically taken away a lot of the ballast and the support for the rail link. I mean, what what we've got now is a situation where we've got a national freight rail network um, that really actually has a very low level of resilience, and um, you know we're building it back to the standard that it was before, rather than thinking about where it needs to be to ensure that we've got. A resilient freight rail network that actually can withstand any sort of a flood uh, situation and, and that, that's actually costing the australian economy uh hundreds of millions of dollars a year by virtue of not having that resilience
0: well this hasn't been a particularly uplifting conversation has it <laughs> There's a lot of challenges we've discussed the fact that we've got some funding challenges how we're going to pay for the infrastructure with the changing technology that's coming in uh we've got an old system that is difficult to maintain and we've got challenges from uh, climate uh, affecting things. And, uh, and we've got to uh, also factor in the changing community and the way we live and, and whatever. But on the positive, we're seeing um, a multimodal happening. We've seen trains from ports, uh, new airports. There's a lot going on. It's been a great chat modal any final thoughts? Yeah, look, there
1: has been um, some significant infrastructure spending uh, that's gone on in Australia and internationally over the last 20 or 30 years. And um, yeah, we just need to be making sure that it's fit for purpose. Um, We think a little bit about uh, where that infrastructure or what it might be being used for in another 20 or 30 years' time. But um, resilience of infrastructure I think not only from a climate change perspective, but even in terms of its uh, contribution to emissions, uh, is something that we're going to be hearing a lot more of in the future.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's a great chat. Thank you very much. Um, This is the 2nd last episode of of the year. Are you going to access any of our infrastructure over Christmas? Are you going to be heading overseas or hopping in the... Well, you you don't own a car, do you? You can't hop in a car and drive up the highway.
1: No, it was uh, a point of some contention as that as the CEO of Road Australia, I <laughs> actually did not own a car. It are a big user of public transport. Um, look, it's possible that I might be using some of that infrastructure over Christmas, but um, I intend to enjoy uh, Christmas at home and enjoy uh, everything that Melbourne and Victoria's got to offer.
0: I might come down there and see if I can find the perfect steak and bottle of red wine with you you'd be very well. thank you very much <laughs> it's always good to chat well that's it for another episode of uh, supply circles thanks again to everyone for listening and thank you for your feedback if you have any feedback on today's interview with michael for or ideas for the show or if you just want to give me some feedback hit me up at aigroup.com.au, or head over to my linkedin page i'd love to hear from you And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.